Hello, 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 and welcome to the. Welcome to the podcast to each her own. I'm the reason you're going to have silver bells stuck in your head. Danielle. My anaconda don't want none unless you've got buns, hon. Ronnie. <laughs> Today we're talking about capitalism. Boo. <laughs> it's contentious for sure. It's a, a complicated issue. So I'm excited to kind of really dive deep on it and kind of get your feel for it and my feel for it and see if we can come up with any revolutionary, amazing, great ideas to save the world, you know. As always, yes. Do you have any early memories with money? Did you get an allowance as a kid? Yes. So my parents were honestly really good about teaching us about money and how to budget and yada yada. So we had an allowance and if we wanted something, we'd have to save our allowance to get it. And I remember the first thing I saved up to buy was a remote control ladybug from Radio Shack. And it was $10, which I think meant I had to save up for two weeks of my $5 allowance. And then there was tax. And then my mom was like, that's okay. Okay, I'll pay the tax for you. Um, but yeah, so they were very good about giving us money to be responsible for and teaching us about living within your means and blah, blah, blah. Granted, my dad does that like professionally. So I think my personal economics education is a lot stronger than a lot of people's um, because of what he does and his interest in beating it into us as children. Ah, how fun. That's just a really cute memory. I got an allowance irregularly as a kid. I maybe got $5 a week. And I mean, there probably wasn't much I would have spent money on. Every time I did get an allowance, I would bicycle to the Walgreens and then buy Pringles and magazines, which is weird. Um, but I do remember being really jealous of my other friends who got more allowance than me. I had one friend whose allowance went up a dollar every year after her birthday. So if she was five, she would get $5 a week. And if she was nine, she would get $9 a week. So I always thought that was interesting. I noticed income inequality at a very young age, but I didn't understand it at the time. I have a story with that. So I had a friend, her name was Alexia. We were friends in like kindergarten and first grade. She lost her tooth and she got $50. Oh my god. Oh, the tooth fairy. Yeah. The tooth fairy gave her $50 and the tooth fairy gave me like a buck. Devastating. I think it's weird like that and Santa Claus are very capitalist uh, ways of gifting your children. That's weird. Yeah. And then you you do get jealous as a kid and you're like, what? Why does the tooth fairy hate me? And no, at no point was I like, this makes me believe less in the tooth fairy. Like the tooth fairy is being unfair. What's up with this? I was just like, she has a really generous tooth fairy. Like I just thought there were multiple tooth fairies and that mine was kind of <laughs> Turns out there are multiple tooth fairies and mine weren't <laughs> They were just cheap. 
That's so funny. My parents didn't really advise me on my financial spending habits, but we did at school when I was in second grade. My second grade teacher saved a ton of cereal boxes and cans and stuff. And then he put little money tags all over them. And then we would get practice fake money and we would get to shop and we would have a budget. And I always thought that was really cute and I love shopping. So as a kid, that was really fun, but that's kind of the earliest memories that I have of money. I'd love to hear about your first job. Yeah, I think my first jobs were like babysitting jobs and it was almost entirely just like kids who lived in the neighborhood with me and looking back there was literally times where I was like babysitting kids that were like barely younger than me to the point where my first babysitting job was my mom was there basically watching all of us but I was the babysitter so I got like ten dollars or something I think I was 12 years old, so I really wasn't mature enough to be watching these kids. But yeah, so I did some babysitting stuff. I tutored kids in high school. That was great. I actually made like pretty good money, but the kids, some of the kids I tutored hardcore sucked. So, you know, it's (laughs) fine. We learned about sexism and how boys don't like it when you're smarter than them. I was very careful about the jobs that I took growing up because I never wanted a job I wouldn't like. So when I turned 15, I was super excited to get a job at the local like tube renting place. And it was really cute. And I actually have a family member who met one of his like lifelong partners at the same tube rental place. It was a really easy job. I got minimum wage and I just stood in the parking lot and I was working parking, but I liked being out in the sun and chatting with people. I like having a more social job. So that was my first one. And then the next job was even lower paying because I was at a a nonprofit summer camp for two years. So I was basically, I calculated it. I was getting like $1.50 an hour and we were working like 12 hour days in the Texas heat, but we were getting meals and stuff like that. And it was really fun. And I felt like it was the perfect time to not get paid too much, though I had no money to spend during the school year. So I waitressed for a few years, like on and off, and they pay you $2.15 an hour. That's what the restaurant pays you. And the assumption is that your tips will get you to minimum wage. And to be 100% honest, there were certainly hours where I was making $20 an hour, $30 an hour, but there was also plenty of hours where I maybe didn't have a table. So I made $2.15 for being there. And I do not trust that the restaurant was going back and paying us up if we didn't make it in tips or whatever. Like they obviously weren't doing that. And so it was such a tricky situation because no, I wasn't making minimum wage. But sometimes I would come home with a bunch of cash, and so I was very excited about it. There were certainly times that I was making way more than minimum wage, but there was plenty of times that I wasn't. And I was just so excited by the concept of having money that I didn't even really care. And now looking back, it's like, how is that legal? How are you legally allowed to pay someone $2.15 and make it so that they're making like paying their bills, meeting their financial responsibilities 100% based on other people tipping. So it's a super rotten system. Yes, 
tip your waitstaff, be overly generous, know that they're probably working for $2.15. But at the same time, like that shouldn't be the system. I shouldn't be paying your waitstaff. You should pay your waitstaff a minimum wage. And a minimum wage needs to be a livable wage, but we can hop down that rabbit hole later. This is a great transition into the theme of the episode, which is capitalism and and all of the good and the bad that come from it. And we're all born into this capitalist system. It very much dominates most of the world. And we don't really have a say in it. All you know when you're a kid is when you get money from the Tooth Fairy, it's super exciting. And when you work a bunch of tables during a busy brunch hour as a waitress and you get a lot of money, you feel like you really earned it. So there's a lot of personal pride that comes with it, but it's totally a flawed system. And anyone who has ever worked a day in his or her life knows that. Um, So I thought I would just start by defining capitalism. We can talk a little bit about the history and go from there. But first, let's take a quick break. And we're back. Capitalism is an economic system based on the private ownership of the means of production and their operation for profit. Capitalism is also a cultural system, and we'll get into that later. So these are all kind of textbook definitions, but central characteristics of capitalism include capital accumulation, competitive markets, a price system, private property, and the recognition of property rights. So like we've mentioned, there are a lot of good sides of capitalism and a lot of bad sides. And that's the way with all different kinds of economic systems. There's a quote I've seen before that says like, Capitalism is the worst economic system along with all the other ones. They're all totally flawed in their own ways. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of jumping off of that, one of the foundational texts that developed modern capitalism as we kind of think about it today is Adam Smith's A Wealth of Nations. And basically, he was the one who introduced this idea that personal wealth and the desire to accumulate personal wealth promotes a collective wealth. So I want to get rich. So I want to start a business. And when my business starts making money, I'm going to hire more people so I can make more money. And then I have a big enough business. I'm supporting, let's say 10 employees. And so my desire, my greed even for this wealth is what produce collective wealth for me and my 10 employees. So he's the one who kind of pioneered this idea that wealth is good, collection of wealth is great, reinvestment is like the cornerstone of building a bigger and bigger economy. And this just became like kind of the Bible, which I would say American capitalism was built on. And the main, I guess, cornerstone of his arguments is about how to grow the pie and produce more production kind of by any means necessary. And so that's something that I think is still really prevalent is that the end goal of more capital and more wealth doesn't necessarily require that it be done in a moral, upright, helpful way for society. But wealth is so highly held in society that you're kind of allowed to cut corners and get away with all this stuff under this guise that like, oh, you're supporting the community. You're wealthy. It's great. There's definitely some merit in what he's saying. And when he wrote this, the world was very different. International trade was nothing like it is today. I'll also say that the idea of 
a community coming together and sharing services and goods and skills and talents is nothing new as well. The idea of having a a system in place in order to have a productive society has really always existed since the beginning of human civilization. When we were in tribes as hunter gatherers, we were dividing up labor and collaborating for some sort of collective goal that also benefited the individual. That being said, there is a lot that can go wrong when there's this division of labor, especially when certain people have more power or opportunity, or some people are workers and some people are property owners, which we can get into. So the word capital is derived from a Latin word meaning head, which also is the origin of the word cattle. Cattle like in the sense of movable property or livestock. And we understand that capitalism started to develop around the Renaissance. Capital was first used in the 12th and 13th century to refer to stock, funds, money. Also, mercantile capitalism has existed long before that, the idea of people trading and there being merchants. But the modern understanding of capitalism as an economic system was coined in 1850. It sort of originated in France. So there was a shift in capitalism between the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution. So this economic shift from feudalism to capitalism started occurring during the Renaissance. Religion still dominated as a more universal ideology, and people believed their place in society was determined by God. And the English Civil War exacerbated this shift. And then additionally, food prices started to increase, and farmers began investing in agricultural technologies to improve crop yields. So there was a lot changing at the time, but if more workers were able to be hired, then the crop yields would increase, which means the prices would go down because there was like a surplus of products. And then the landowners were able to reinvest the money or the profit into agricultural technology, and they were able to regulate those prices, making things more affordable, allowing workers to acquire more wealth in theory. That's sort of how it starts off as good. So something I really want to talk about is the pie. Basically, the pie is what percentage of the world's wealth do you have? And in early pre-industrial times, how much wealth you had was limited to the marketplace that you took up. So if you lived in a little town that was separated from anywhere else, like you weren't able to sell your goods or services outside of this town, and you had a bakery and you sold bread, and another bakery opened up, they're taking away your business. Your share of the pie is being interfered with because this bakery, like there's two bakeries in one town that only serves this very small market. However, with the expansion of markets due to increased transportation, being able to freeze food and travel with refrigerated trucks completely changed what markets existed, at least in terms of the farming, agricultural marketing. And so basically the pie has grown and grown and grown and continues to grow partially due to population growth, partially due to new technology, partially due to the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution, discovering new markets, introducing new marketplaces such as online markets and the internet. It's tricky because the pie has always grown and has continued to grow at such an extreme rate for such a long time. Um, so for example, in 
1500, the global production of the world, all the goods and services produced in one year was at $250 billion. And then in 2015, it was $16 trillion. So the pie in a relatively short amount of time has just grown and grown and grown. This comes back to what we talked about, I guess, last week, which was people are so concerned about their piece of the pie, but the pie has gotten to such a big point and it grows so much so frequently that your financial success does not hinge on the losses of other people, yet we still have that kind of insecurity about resources and wealth. On the surface, hearing the increase between 1500 and 2015 sounds really positive and very impressive, but what you don't see in that is the people whose lives were on the line and all of the stress that came with that production. An argument a lot of people who are pro-capitalism make is that capitalism is really efficient, increases the efficiency of production, it lets you pump out a lot of products or services at an, a relatively affordable rate, which is true, but I guess transitioning into Karl Marx, who is someone I always think of when it comes to capitalism, not because he uh, was in favor of capitalism, but because he was a, a big opponent of it, is there's this loss of the individual's purpose and fulfillment when they're part of this supply chain. So there are trillions of dollars that a lot of people are acquiring. It's being spread out across a lot of, you know, wealthy elitists, but there are a lot of people who who aren't being compensated as much as they should be because the system is built so that the, the biggest profit is given to the, the people at the top. There's this illusion with capitalism that everybody, kind of like the American dream, that everybody can acquire wealth and rise up, but the system doesn't sustain that and it was never intended to. It was never built so that everybody could become rich. It was built so that people could be compensated for their labor, but that the people managing the laborers, like managing the means of production, those people benefit the most from the system, which creates this inequality that we're seeing across the world today. That's a really good point. The people who control the means of production have all the power. And so that's why you kind of see like the establishment of labor unions. The power of the everyday man like only exists as a collective group. So the value of them and their power is almost non-existent as an individual worker. It limits the worker to this is your only job you can have, like if you walk away from us, we don't care because they don't value the worker at all and they don't need to value the worker and they've never had to value the worker until workers unionize and then become a collective voice. And then suddenly it's this, I'm the victim of the union, like the union's attacking me and I'm just a good capitalist. And it's like, no, you've been taking advantage of people over and over and over again. And they came together and said, enough is enough. The main point I'm trying to make is that workers in production style businesses only have worth as a collective. And that is a fundamental flaw of capitalism, that your value and your worth is only connected to how much product you produce, and for you to have any power in this business, you have to be a collective. Karl Marx predicted this kind of conflict um, 
in the Communist Manifesto, which he published in 1848, he basically attacks capitalism and predicts all of these problems that will arise because of the transition from feudalism to capitalism. And he's known for believing that societies develop through class conflict. And he also was able to recognize during this industrial revolution that in a capitalist society, the conflict manifests between the ruling class or the bourgeoisie and the working class or the proletariat. There's always conflict between them because there's this power dynamic. And what I will mention now is I use the word bougie all the time. Bad and bougie. It's kind of very trendy right now. It's a fun appropriation of the original word bourgeoisie, but that kind of shows you how deeply rooted capitalism is in our kind of modern vernacular. And we were talking earlier about how the bourgeoisie controls the means of production, machinery, materials, etc. And the proletariat enables these means by selling their labor power in return for wages. And this might sound extreme, but there's almost like this blackmailing system happening between the people who control the means of production and the workers because of the profit gap between how much the workers are being paid for their work and how much the people who control them are making. There's this weird question, it's like an existential question of how much am I worth and how much are my services worth? And right now we're in a global pandemic. I'm freelancing, which is really helpful. I'm really glad that I can supply and sell my services, which are valuable as a graphic designer. But I also run into this existential question every week of how much can I charge for my services? Do I charge at an hourly rate? Do I charge at a, a project? rate. I'm living at home, so I'm not paying for rent, but I should still receive how much I would need regardless because I, I do have to pay for things. And so it's a really weird system that sort of dehumanizes you because you have to put your life, you have to put a price tag on your life and your, your labor and your time, which are all, they're not innately material. That's a really interesting point. This is kind of a sidetrack, but someone told me this one time and I thought about it a lot. So they were saying that they heard someone talk about The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. And the basic premise is this boy just consumes this tree. He eats the apple. He takes a branch. He makes a cane. He cuts down the tree. He makes a house. He makes a boat until there's nothing left but a stump. So this boy keeps going to this one tree and consumes it. And the tree loves the boy, so the tree keeps giving and giving and giving. And that model of if you love me, if you're loyal to me, you'll let me destroy you is so interesting, yet I kind of think we see it over and over again where human beings are consumed for production. And like that could be literal consumption in terms of people who have been enslaved and lost their lives. That can be emotional burnout consumption. Somehow production requires consumption and we've hit a point where a lot of this production and consumption is so exhausting and so detrimental to the people involved. And it makes sense why they say millennials are the burnout generation. But we've been asked for more and more and more and more. Do you have hours and hours and hours of your day to do this, that, and the other thing? 
And while you're at it, you have to look good. You have to be skinny. You have to be mentally stable. And everything costs 30% more than it ever did for your parents. Good luck. And people are being consumed by the system and it's exhausting. It really is. And I feel like most millennials have a side hustle these days, at least a lot of people I know, because you have to have a side hustle in order to make it. I think about moving to New York one day and having a job that doesn't pay enough for me to live alone. And I so badly want to live alone. And so I'm thinking of how I can freelance on the side of my already busy job that I don't have yet in order to live comfortably. And I feel baby boomers are always complaining about how we don't work hard when they've, <laughs> they've created this world that is impossible to live comfortably in. Houses are so much more expensive than they used to be. Honestly, everything is. And then on top of all that, you need a cell phone bill in order to, to relax, have some R&R after work. You need to have like three different streaming subscriptions because you want to keep up with the Joneses. Like our whole world is so rooted in capitalism. Our ideas of individualism are totally intertwined with this worth that we are convinced we can get um, by working and operating within the system. And we can't get out of it. I think I would probably protest more and organize unions or do something to change the system if I had the time, but I don't have the time because I'm enslaved to the system. It's a very fine line. So I think that capitalism, it is brutally efficient. It is something that can, you know, lower the cost of items, it can increase the technology and research going into improving the production. And then once they kind of achieve that goal of like, hey, we got the technology to make this better, faster, and easier and cheaper. Oh, but we don't have to tell anyone. We're just going to keep charging the same price. And it seems like the goal of just accumulating more money is the number one god, the number one driver in capitalism. And so it's a really powerful tool and then we get to the end of the road and every single time, every single person and every single company says, I'm going to keep this. I'm going to make a little bit more money. I'm going to raise the prices even though I've reduced the cost of production and they can get away with it. Or the stuff where they jack up the prices intentionally and price gouge. It's supposed to be free market capitalism is going to stop this because we're going to have these companies that are competing with each other. And if they want the business, they better get the lowest prices and we go low, low, low. And however, what's happening now is big mega companies build wealth, build wealth, build wealth, buy out their entire competition, run a monopoly, price gouge everyone, and it's completely unchecked capitalism. And I think that's the problem. So one comment I would like to say, there's a difference between wealth and capital. Capital is money you put back to work. Wealth is money you sit on and you hold. And so I think capitalism you know, used to be the end of the road is more capital to reinvest. And there's something noble and wonderful about that, because that means I'm going to build the pie for everyone. However, it's become all I want is wealth for myself at the expense and cost and consumption of the worker and anyone else. Another quote I've heard, which complements what you're saying is, the market is a good servant, but it's a bad master and an even worse religion. So the people working are putting in as much effort as they can. Um, 
they they don't really have as much of an opportunity to negotiate prices. In theory, you can negotiate wages, but in practice, you take the jobs you can get, especially these days in a global pandemic, which reveals the frailty of the economic system. And then in regard to the master, you're so right about these mega companies that keep joining up. I feel like so many entrepreneurs start out thinking that they want to do good and and change the conventions and give back. But you see a lot of these mega mergers, Facebook and Instagram. I did a little bit of research on Luxottica, which I only learned about a few years ago and it shocked me. Like it's this sort of monopoly sunglass brand that runs all the other sunglass brands like Ray-Bans and Lens Crafters. In an article by the LA Times, someone said there's no competition in the industry anymore. Luxottica bought everyone. They set whatever prices they please and then anyone else who has a small business and there are tons of people who do, influencers, all of the above, they have to work with that set price range and they don't have as many resources, research, money to do so. So it's really tricky. There are also a lot of tech hearings happening right now. And Amazon is a really interesting piece of this because they're this like online commercial platform, really affordable prices. I feel guilty whenever I shop from there because they have the best options for my wallet and it's a great hub. So I can really find whatever I need there. The problem is they also allow other sellers to come on and sell their own products, but Amazon has all of the research, they can see the sales, they know what's selling, and they've developed this side brand called Amazon Basics, where they they start selling exactly what everyone else is selling, but at a slightly cheaper price. And then on top of that, they're like paying other people or creating their own reviews. And I always look at these reviews. So when I learned that they're even like monopolizing the reviews and the five-star ratings and there are these people with photos that seem and captions that seem written from the heart. I'm just shocked by how convoluted this whole system is, but it works because I am still buying from them. And it's because I have to, I don't have a, I don't always have the money to go elsewhere. And I would love to be able to vote with my dollar all the time, but that is much easier said than done. It shouldn't be this hard to be a conscientious consumer. And we've gotten to a point where it's impossible to be a conscientious consumer because every mega company has deep, ugly corruption. And we uphold them as the success story. Jeff Bezos is the American dream because he started a business in his garage and now he's the richest man in the world. And so we've attached moral goodness to him producing that much money and kind of excuse everything he did to get there. So yeah, that is such an interesting point where it's really hard to not just buy the cheapest thing when you're pressed for money because everything costs so much money yet wages have stagnated and the lowest cost is from a company that we know is corrupt, but we can't do anything about it because we don't have enough money to do something else. Um, and it's such a trap. I would say that a lot of politicians are very pro-capitalism or they want to 
figure out a blend of social capitalism, socialist capitalism. And the big topic you hear a lot of them talking about at that political level is college debt and how in this world, in order to be successful for the most part, you need at least an undergraduate college degree. Community college works, and then if you want some higher paying jobs or you want to work your way up in the company, it's easier to do that if you have a master's at least. But the problem is college is so damn expensive. And so once you're graduating, in order to get those opportunities, you're already in debt. And that doesn't include the houses you're investing in, the car you need to buy to get to your job. So that's another side effect of this, this tricky system. You already have to put a lot of money into it in order to get anything out of it. And you're not even promised what you think you'll get out of it. Yeah, there's no guarantee to it. So that kind of transitions into what I would like to talk about next. So I think what we've discussed thus far is kind of our early relationships with money. We've touched on kind of the beginning of capitalism, both as a political theory and partially as a religion, because it kind of is. And then we discussed kind of the cons of capitalism. There are benefits to capitalism. We touched on those as well. However, I think our concern here is just this like unchecked capitalism where we get this like mega companies, monopolies, and just exploitation of either the consumer or the workers or both. So if we want to get a system that is better, what do we need to do? I think that since capitalism is so deeply rooted in our culture and our society, it would be really hard to flip the system or introduce a new one. I don't know. I, I just think this is such a tough question to answer because of how rigid everything seems. Marx was always advocating for communism. We have seen with a few countries that it's not necessarily the best option, but as an idea, the idea of this like collective class where everyone is equal, those are values we haven't really implemented or accepted as a society either. And so this like division between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and however you want to look at that now, these days with the one percenters, the middle class, the lower class, a lot of what influences the, that stratification is race and, and sexism and all these demographics. So I guess what I'm just saying, I don't necessarily have a solution, but I think that there's a lot more to this than just the, the income disparity and money. This also has a lot to do with like racial ideology and the way the government also backs capitalism and they kind of go hand in hand. So that was something we talked about last week of there's just so many variables that contribute to the American dream not being as attainable for certain people. So wealth, I think, is a really powerful tool. And so when you have a developing country, the first thing that they do, they're like, hey, let's invest in this developing country. Let's pour some money into it, give them some credit, and then really make sure that they protect private property and the rule of law. And with private property being strongly protected and the rule of law being upheld, economic growth 
happens pretty quickly. That's awesome and that's powerful and that's a great tool. In America, we have such a wealthy system that we should be able to do big changes um, because we have the money to back it up. And the money just being concentrated at the top is the problem. It's not that we don't have the money or that capitalism is a complete failure or that we need to get rid of money to be happy, healthy society, but we just need to reimagine how we think about wealth. And so we talked about kind of this entitlement to your wealth and this entitlement to your money, which is true in order for there to be a healthy economy, you need really strong protections over private property. However, taxes are an established thing and we just need to accept that the wealthiest people in America are collecting wealth, not capital. They are not investing that money back into Americans, America, or even their businesses. Some of that money is getting reinvested and they are growing their market share. And when they grow their market share, they use it as a monopoly to make even more money. So if it's wealth, not capital. Capital's good, wealth can be dangerous. And so I think some of the ideas that were kind of getting pushed around in the Democratic primaries are really interesting and could have a really good impact on the American economy without killing it. Like, I certainly don't want to, like, shut down economic growth. That's not good for anyone. However, I do think that the ultra-millionaire tax that Elizabeth Warren recommended is a good option. Universal basic income that Andrew Yang recommended is a good option and raising the minimum wage needs to happen. So we have a lot of control measures in the government that help us control inflation and interest rates. The federal government sets the interest rates of how expensive it is to borrow money. Um, so we have all these knobs and all these dials that are supposed to help us keep a healthy growing economy. However, it hasn't worked. So I think we need to add more dials um, in order to promote an economy that works for everyone. And frankly, I do think it's going to require big government intervention because unchecked capitalism isn't working. Absolutely. And you make a great point with the politicians who have a lot of influence over this. And although Bernie Sanders didn't get to be the main blue candidate for this election in 2020 or the last one in 2016, he has a lot of influence and he's really vocal and he's really mobilizing younger generations. So I am feeling optimistic because a lot of other politicians have had to adopt some of his ideas or policies, but I do think that this change is happening slower than I wish it were. Um, so at times it it's hard to be optimistic, but that's why it's important to vote. Slow is frustrating, but I think we also need to think about the time scale that we can work on. And it's like, if we can implement a few of these changes in the next five years, in 15 years, it's going to have such an impact. We're not going to care that it took five years. And I really believe that making some of these changes that really just put some limits on the ultra rich, ultra wealthy will really help society as a whole. The government controls inflation to an extent. So why can't they control wages to an extent? Like, why can't we just match wages to inflation 
and call it a day. So I just think that some people are really narrow-minded with what they're willing to say or do in terms of fixing this. And I think it's going to require some ideas that aren't even that extreme or radical. It's just that it's something different about people's money, which makes them very nervous because money is equated to stability. We just need to be brave and be willing to reimagine it. We need to accept that the system could be better and should be better. I think so too. And I also hope that people can make efforts to learn more about the system that they were born into. I felt like I learned a lot about the system during the last few years in college especially, and I got some more nuggets of knowledge during the research of this podcast, but there are a lot of people, you're not taught about capitalism in in school, and you might learn about it in college, and you might get different sides of it as well, but it's like this very convoluted, complex idea and we all run around it and within it and finding a way for people to learn about it and understand it and be educated and know what's happening in the system is a another issue as well kind of a side note more about money than capitalism i guess is i think women still to this day don't feel confident about controlling their money, spending their money, saving their money, investing their money. Money has been controlled and managed by men for so long that even women that I know that are my age are kind of overwhelmed by the prospect. The most important thing you can do for yourself is get control of your personal finances. You need to be able to be financially independent so that you can protect yourself and you don't have to worry about, I can't leave this guy because I'm living with him and I can't pay my rent without him. Women are scared of money sometimes. And I think the biggest tool for women to be independent and financially stable and financially secure is just getting confident and taking charge of your personal finances. The reason women are scared of it is, a hundred percent what society has told us like women can't have the same drive as men women can't have the same jobs as men women aren't good at math like money is math blah 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 so any women out there listening please 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 get your finances in order please take it seriously um and just like know that that's your security blanket and your independence more than anything i want more women to be confident about managing their own finances and what that means and looks like There is a lot of freedom in being able to support yourself, however that may be. Also, some advice to the people out there is to be careful with credit cards. There there are just so many mixed messages that are being thrown at us all the time. And whenever I scroll on Instagram, I'm seeing beautiful clothing and products and, and things that I want. So sometimes it's hard to prioritize. And even when it comes to food, like if you're craving Chick-fil-A, even though you have a frozen chicken breast in the freezer. But there are a lot of um, budget tips and things that you can do to, to tackle a lot of this, but it really does start at the personal level, and there's just nothing scarier in my mind than being dependent on a man, especially, like, well, period. 
there's nothing scarier than being dependent on someone else for your life security. So both of my parents had dads that weren't the best and they had moms that really wanted to protect them and take care of them and didn't have the financial means to do so. And so they stayed in marriages that were abusive and horrible to both them and their children because they didn't have the financial independence. And so that's a generational scar that definitely is on my family. And so like my heart just breaks that women get trapped with money. Economic abuse is abuse. Them holding money away from you, them controlling you with money is abuse. And your biggest tool to protect yourself from people who want to take advantage of you with money is get your money in control. And that's not to say like, it's just big nasty men who are financially abusing people. Lenders for payday loans are financially abusing people. When you are pushed into a corner because you don't have your finances in order and you have to take a high interest loan, that's financial abuse. That's part of the problem with capitalism is that money is power and the people with the money are able to abuse the people without the money. There's this scene in Mad Men when Don Draper gets a raise and then he has a secret drawer and he puts the money in it and there are just like hundreds and hundreds of hundred dollar bills in there. And there's a scene later when his wife Betty is asking if they could buy a vacation home or some place where they could have family gatherings with um, extended family as well. And he says, oh, we just can't cut it this year. And so I think that's like very emblematic of this issue that seemed more prevalent in the the 50s and 60s when women weren't when women weren't working as much and men were in control of all of the finances and they had extra private executive expense accounts but this problem continues today and it may not look the same from the outside but i mean it shows a lot of people get married for financial security i wish that that weren't the case but um that is like a benefit of marriage there's so many ways that capitalism influences culture yeah and it's hard because there are women in marriages now who've never touched their marital finances they don't know they don't know where the money is they don't know how to check it they don't know and it's always been like oh it's the husband's job like he makes more of the money he manages the money he makes makes the decisions like I just don't want to deal with that is just a breeding ground for power dynamic issues if someone is in control of the money and understands the money more um, and I think that a modern fruitful healthy happy relationship should it be a hundred percent equal and not a hundred percent equal in the you raise the kids and I take care of the money a hundred percent equal in you raise 50 percent of these kids and I know 50 percent of what's going on with the money genuinely equal not this is my role this is your role every single thing needs to be equal and balanced amen, amen. and I hope we're on the road to get there I believe that you and me are our disciples of this ideology along with a lot of other people we love and care about. So I'm feeling optimistic, but this is sort of a paradigm shift that needs to happen. Yeah, 100%. Any parting shots about capitalism? I always thought Mr. Krabs and SpongeBob was incredibly unlikable. And I think that he's quite a, a figure of the evils of capitalism. <laughs> Almost a commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a hot take, a hot take for the week, hot take, hot take? 
I sure do. Halloween is approaching, and I've just always thought werewolves were way hotter than vampires. What do you think? I love a broody boy, though. I'm a basic, <laughs> I'm a basic person, and I love a broody moment. It's so funny. So I consumed a ton of YA fiction from fifth grade through high school. I read a ton of YA fiction. <laughs> and now as an adult, going back and looking at it, I'm like, that is a horrible model of women. I know. That is a horrible model of men. It's a garbage commentary on a healthy relationship. And so it's so funny talking about it as an adult or looking back on it as an adult and just being like, oh my God, the broody boy just needs my love. And it's like, no, he doesn't. He needs to sort his shit out and tell you what he wants. Brooding is not attractive. Also, what is this thing with vampires dating mortal women and then turning them into vampires? That That's very problematic. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I guess those pale necks are just so intriguing. <laughs> What's your hot take? What is my hot take? My hot take is Nosferatu, total babe. <laughs> so yes we will be back next friday new spicy episode continuing our investigation into modern america you can find us over on instagram at to each her own pod no capitals or spaces go peep all the amazing art ronnie makes and feel free to hop in those dms with questions comments or snide remarks that wraps it up i love you ronnie I love you too.